0: No matter where you're from, who you are, how much you make a year, or how you celebrate the holiday season, there is something that unites all of us across every border and sociocultural bridge, and that is our universal loathing of fruitcake. There are some ardent lovers of fruitcake out there, but generally when you hear people talking about fruitcake... It's not from a place of love. So why does it even exist? What's the history behind it? And what about some of our other holiday traditions we carry out each year without really knowing why? Today, on this special Holiday History Bite episode, we're going to discover the origins of fruitcake, eggnog, the Yule log, and, because I wanted to throw in something extra obscure and fantastic, a cannibalistic Christmas troll from Iceland. I'm even going to give you George Washington's actual eggnog recipe. Be warned, it has a lot of alcohol in it. So join me, friends, and let's uncover some of the history behind why we do what we do around this time of year. You might be surprised at just how far back it all goes. We're even going to make a pit stop in ancient Rome. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. Johnny Carson, legendary former host of The Tonight Show, once famously claimed that, quote, "...the worst gift is fruitcake." there is only one fruitcake in the entire world and people keep sending it to each other," unquote. And many would agree there's even a town, Manitou Springs, Colorado, that has gathered together every year since 1994 to engage in their annual great fruitcake toss. Every January, people bring all the fruitcakes they want to get rid of and literally just throw them away as far as they can by any means. And it gets creative Catapults are a popular means of disposal, as are spud guns. And people get quite serious about the competition. There are categories for different weight divisions of fruitcake, as well as ingredient requirements and trophies awarded in several categories. This town really came together over how much they hate fruitcake. But despite its reputation, there are still millions and millions of pounds sold each year, and not all of these cakes can be jokes. And we have been eating fruitcake for thousands of years. Most sources tag the ancient Romans as the first makers of fruitcake. There is a 2,000-year-old Roman recipe that calls for pomegranate seeds, pine nuts, and raisins that were all mixed into a barley mash and then shaped into a ring. The Romans would eat these sweet treats during festivals, and because of their extended shelf-life, even back then, Roman soldiers would often bring them on military campaigns. By the Middle Ages in Europe, dried fruit became more widely available, and was added in with honey and different spices. This variation of fruitcake was apparently popular with crusaders on their long campaigns. Variations of fruitcake sprang up all over the place in the succeeding centuries with many different variations. In the 1200s, in Italy, a sweet and spicy bread called Panforte appeared in Siena. In Germany, the Stollen developed in the 1400s. This version isn't quite as dense, and it's topped with melted butter and sugar, which actually sounds pretty delicious. Apparently, fruitcake was outlawed for a bit in Europe in the 18th century because it was considered to be too sinfully rich. This law was eventually dropped because of how popular it was to have fruitcake at tea time. The sources on this were a bit weak, so I wonder if this is a bit apocryphal. If there are any 18th century European scholars out there that can shed some light on this, please shoot me an email. I'd love to know. In the 16th century, British colonies supplied cheaper sugar supplies, and more sugar was subsequently added to fruitcake, making it more dense. By the Victorian era, people had started adding alcohol to the recipe, usually rum or brandy, extending the shelf life even further. By the way, the average fruitcake usually weighs two pounds, and according to Harper's Index, has a one-to-one ratio with mahogany. In the Caribbean, fruitcake is soaked in rum for months, sometimes up to a year. All this added sugar is what really gives fruitcake its moisture-stabilizing properties, which helps to bind microorganisms and prevent the growth of mold. If you preserve it correctly, you can easily make a fruitcake that lasts for over 25 years. In fact, many bakers claim you're not supposed to eat it until it's been sitting out after baking for at least a month. Some even say a year. This is supposed to give the cake time to enhance its flavors. For much of the time it's been around, fruitcake has been considered a delicacy and has even been served at royal weddings. Queen Victoria had a fruitcake at her wedding, as did Queen Elizabeth. Prince Charles and Princess Diana had one. According to an article from Vogue, it's rumored that Prince William's and Kate Middleton's wedding fruitcake cost upwards of $80,000. As you can see, fruitcake has been around for a long time. So why do we hate it so much now? One reason might be that most of us have never eaten a homemade fruitcake. Lovers of the cakes sometimes blame the mass production of mail-order fruitcakes that commenced in the early 20th century. These mail-order or store-bought versions just can't hold their own compared to the homemade stuff. My mother actually makes a fruitcake every year. It's not dense, it has more of a light consistency, but it's full of nuts and different fruits and is topped off with a white icing. And it's gross. Every year, I just eat the frosting off of it. I can say that because I'm 100% sure my mother doesn't listen to this podcast. I can't seem to explain to my parents exactly what a podcast is, so don't worry, her feelings will not be hurt. And she doesn't like this cake either anyway, she just makes it because that's what her mother did. And it's a tradition that we uphold not because we enjoy it, but because it's just been there for a long time. But I don't mean to hate so much on fruitcakes, just because I've never enjoyed one or known anyone who has doesn't mean there aren't talented bakers out there that can actually make this holiday cake taste delicious. As to the holiday connection we all have with fruitcake, well, that's kind of a mystery. Maybe it stems back to when fruit was scarce during the winter in centuries past. Fruitcake held up well, and it's possible people would save it for the holiday to have as a treat at a holiday meal or a gathering. Plus, we love decadence during the holidays, and fruitcake used to be considered a real delicacy. And in the early 20th century, if you wanted to ship out a bit of decadence through the postal service, nothing could hold up quite like fruitcake. Whatever the reason, it's here. It's been here for thousands of years, and history suggests it will continue on, probably for as long as we do. Speaking of traditions that are full of booze, well, usually, Eggnog very well may be the most popular holiday drink, at least in recent centuries. My listeners in the UK might call it egg flip, but it's the same thing. 135 million pounds, or just over 61 million kilos, are consumed by Americans alone each year. One cup, that's 8 ounces, has over 210 calories and 11 grams of fat. So it's pretty delicious. Typically, all eggnog recipes contain egg yolks that are left raw, sugar, whole milk, heavy cream, and it's usually topped with nutmeg and cinnamon. A lot of people add bourbon, cognac, and rum to give it a boost, especially during holiday family gatherings. According to HuffPost, the store-bought stuff does not contain raw eggs, and the FDA only allows less than 1% of it to consist of egg. But it does usually contain high fructose corn syrup, Wargum gum, and carrageenan. That means the homemade stuff usually blows the store-bought nog out of the water. So where does eggnog come from? Most sources agree that it's a descendant of a medieval beverage called posset. This was a hot, milky drink spiked with ale. According to an article from Time, by the 13th century, monks began adding eggs, sherry, and figs into it, these ingredients were costly back then, so it was usually a drink only the wealthy could afford. It was used in toasts to prosperity and good health. The word origin of eggnog is a bit elusive. According to Icelandic food historian Nana Rogenvaldard Rogenvaldard daughter Rogan daughter. Roganvaldard- I know I butchered that so bad and I'm so sorry. According to Nana, the word nog was a somewhat obscure English word that was used to describe strong beer. Nog, perhaps derived from noggin, could possibly also refer to a wooden cup that the drink was held in. We added the egg part much later, so now we call it eggnog. By the 1700s, the drink became associated with the holidays and was popular in the American colonies where rum was used as the alcoholic ingredient, making it much cheaper to produce since rum was not heavily taxed. The abundance of farms in the colonies made the milk and eggs easy to come by, and the drink has been wildly popular ever since. George Washington had his own recipe for eggnog, and I have to share it with you because this is a history podcast and I can't help it. To make George Washington's eggnog, you have to add together, quote, one quart cream, one quart milk, one dozen tablespoons sugar, one pint brandy, half pint rye whiskey, half pint Jamaica rum, half pint sherry, mix liquor first. Then separate yolks and whites of 12 eggs. Add sugar to beaten yolks, mix well. Add milk and cream, slowly beating, Beat whites of eggs until stiff and fold slowly into mixture. Let set in cool place for several days. Taste frequently. Unquote. Washington liked his nog to be pretty thick. I'll add a link to this recipe in the show notes. There's also a link to Martha Washington's great cake recipe. If you try either one or already have, write me and let me know how they tasted. I am not gifted enough a baker or maker of... Culinary things to try them myself. So, eggnog, or a loose version of it, has been around for something like a thousand years. When we humans like something, we hold on to it for a long time. We just sometimes change the alcohol. Hi, I'm Pauline Altman. And I'm Jessica Thomas, and we're from Quick Bites. Quick Bites is an educational podcast where we each pick a random topic to research every week. So you can learn without having to read. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. And on Twitter and Instagram at QuickBitesPod. You can even send topic requests to QuickBitesPod at gmail.com. Tell your friends. Quick Quick Bites. Bites. There's another tradition that goes back even further than either eggnog or fruitcake. And that is the Yule Log. Now when we hear the words Yule Log today, we tend to think of a chocolate cake, frosted to look like an actual log. But the origin of the real Yule Log is ancient. Its origins probably stem from pre-Christian Scandinavian and Germanic pagan cultures. Yule lasted 12 days, through December and January, during the shortest nights of the year, and was a celebration of the winter solstice hailing the return of the sun and the advent of longer days ahead. Yule was not the only holiday celebrating the winter solstice. Cultures all over the world celebrated the shortest and longest days of the year, some still do. We've been doing it probably ever since we learned how to track time and seasons with the sun. During Yule, families would journey together into the forest in search of a large oak tree, They would bring it back home, and burn it on their hearths in homage to various gods, and to celebrate life and prosperity. There is some debate as to whether Yule Logs were a derivative of this early pagan tradition, but most of the sources I found describe it as a progression of this pagan rite. The Yule Log tradition isn't usually carried out today like it used to be, but the burning of a Yule Log persisted for millennia and carried some hefty superstitions with it. According to an article from Snopes, you couldn't buy a Yule log. That was bad luck. You had to go out and get one yourself. You could eventually forego the massive oak tree and use a stump or some other piece of wood instead. You had to light the log with the remnant of the previous year's Yule log that would have been stored under the homeowner's bed, where it was thought to have protected the home from fire and lightning all throughout the previous year. You could only light the new Yule Log when your hands were clean, and if you didn't manage to light it on the first try, it meant misfortune was on the way for the whole family. The log had to stay lit for 12 hours, some sources say 12 days, and this was usually a time when people would gather around the fire and tell stories, drink warm beverages, and reflect. In the flickering light of the Yule Log, if your shadow appeared to be headless against the wall, it meant you would die sometime that year. The Yule log today usually isn't a log at all. It's often called a bouche de Noël, and is a chocolate cake decorated to look like a real Yule log. This tradition originated in France as a response from families not having a fireplace to burn a Yule log, but still wanting to partake somehow in the old holiday tradition. In the U.S., the scarcity of fireplaces for everyone was a problem as well, especially in cities. And in 1966, Fred Thrower, the New York City Television Programming Director, had his local station broadcast a looped video of a burning log in a fireplace. This loop would be backdropped by Christmas music and begin running on Christmas Eve to give families without fireplaces a festive Yule ambiance right on their television screens. You can get the burning Yule log on demand these days, and in HD, so you can grab a loved one, a hot beverage, a piece of fruitcake, and just Yule log and chill. But the holidays aren't all crackling fireplaces, booze-infused egg drinks, and fruity cakes. Sometimes traditions are still wrapped in the fear we could feel during the cold darkness of the winter nights of yore. One such tradition comes in the form of legend. In Iceland, during the Christmas season, you best keep an eye on the wild hills for Gríla, the Christmas troll. By the way, I sincerely apologize to any Icelandic listeners for all the things I'm about to mispronounce. Your language is super hard for me to pronounce for some reason, but I promise I'm doing my best. In the States, if your family celebrates Christmas and you've been a bad kid all year, you're told that Santa will give you a lump of coal instead of an Xbox. In Iceland, if you're a bad kid, Grilla kidnaps you, hauls you back to her lair, cooks you in a pot, then eats you and shares your meat with her equally disgusting husband, Lepaludi. She's been around in Icelandic folklore since about 1300 CE. Sometimes Gríla is called the Christmas Witch, but most accounts describe her as a troll. There's some debate on exactly what she looks like, but she's generally described as being huge, even a giant. One rhyme describes her coming down from the wilderness to collect children, holding 100 bags, each filled with 20 children. Another account describes her carrying children away in balloons instead of bags, which somehow seems even more disturbing. A giant, ugly troll carrying hundreds of children trapped inside balloons back to her lair to eat them is a new Christmas image for me. Depending on who you ask, she has either 15 or 40 tails, one head, sometimes with eyes peering out the back, or maybe even 300 heads, complete with three eyes each. She may have horns, hooves, or a matted beard, and all her teeth are charcoal black. Her ears are said to be so long that they hit her on the nose as she walks. Though the descriptions may differ, everyone agrees she is super ugly. She is the mother of the 13 Yule lads who come down during the Icelandic 13 days of Christmas to play pranks and cause mischief wherever they go. She is apparently a cat person. Her cat, Yola Kotorin, or the Yule cat, prowls around the countryside and will eat anyone, man, woman or child, that did not receive any clothes for Christmas.) <laughs> Apparently, it was believed that if you didn't get clothes for Christmas, it didn't mean that the socio-economic tables were turned against you, it just meant that you didn't work hard enough. That seems pretty judgy, even for a murderous Yule cat. Grilla serves as a cautionary tale for children, and is used as a way to keep kids in line during the holiday season, much like Santa or even Krampus. Her image has softened over the years, and you can find her everywhere in Iceland, from festivals to airports during the holidays. Most adults in Iceland do not actually believe in Grela, but many do believe in the existence of trolls and elves. They're used to explain many of the rock formations around Iceland, and local populations take their folklore very seriously. According to The Atlantic, in a 1998 survey, 54.4% of Icelanders said they believed in elves. I couldn't find any more contemporary data on that, but it's clear Icelanders value their folklore, and Gríla holds a special, if a bit disturbing, place in the hearts and minds of Iceland's people. And whatever it is you're up to this time of year, whatever traditions you're celebrating or not celebrating, Whatever you're eating, drinking, burning, or running from, in case it eats you, I wish you the best of it. And may this upcoming year be for you everything you're hoping it will be. Here's to you, and what I truly hope will be your best year yet. That does it for this special holiday edition of the History Cache. If you're enjoying the show, please consider following or subscribing wherever you listen. It's completely free to do so. The more followers and subscribers I get, the more visible the show will become. If you'd like to support the show and earn my eternal gratitude, you can do that at patreon.com historycashpodcasts. All patrons get special benefits, including free stickers, even at the $1 a month level, and full access to a members-only feed. For an independent podcast offering free content, patrons are what makes the world go round, and I am sincerely grateful to everyone who is supporting the show. If you want to get a hold of me, you can do that at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram and Twitter. And thanks for listening today and picking this podcast out of the 500,000 others you could have chosen from. Your listenership means so much to me. Join me again in two weeks' time when I'll be bringing you another History bite. I've been busy researching the next big episode for you that I'm so excited about, and not to give too much away, it involves ancient history, snakes, and a handful of historical players that shaped history so fully that we can still see how it affects us today. If you can guess who it's about from that... I will happily send you some free stickers. I've been your host, Kristen Robine-Terpstra, and until we meet again, dear heroes of podcast land, go make some history.